Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. So we'll discuss the practical applications of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing, uh, sustainability, climate change. Um, Today's topic is sustainability and waste management. According to the New York Times, a total of 83 environmental rules are being rolled back by the Trump administration. Environmental rules it sees as burdensome to the fossil fuel industry and to other big businesses are being targeted. For instance, the administration delayed by two years an EPA rule regulating the limits on toxic discharge, which can include mercury from power plants into public waterways. It withdrew a proposed rule aimed at reducing pollutants, including air pollution, at sewage treatment plants. It ordered the EPA to reevaluate a section of the Clean Water Act that allows states to reject or delay federal projects, including fossil fuel facilities, if they don't meet local water quality goals. It also narrowed the scope of a 2016 law mandating safety assessments for potentially toxic chemicals like dry cleaning solvents and paint strippers. The EPA will now focus on direct exposure and exclude air, water, and ground contamination. So with such an assault on the environment in an era of climate change, states and municipalities are left to manage and reduce their waste so as not to add to the degradation. Here at City College, we're launching a year of programming around environmental justice, in part because we have such a rich reserve of expertise in that field, and in part because there may be no single issue with greater near- and long-term impact on humanity than the environment. As we do this programming, we're explicitly talking about environmental justice because that phrase marries two concepts together— On the one hand, we use the word environment because it encompasses the broadest collection of issues on on this general area that we could name. So sustainability, biodiversity, climate change, resiliency, food security, and the like. But then we also add to that the term justice because these are issues that have a differential impact on people who are otherwise under-resourced and marginalized. So immigrant communities, impoverished communities, the elderly, people without access to basic human services and resources... Over the course of the next year, as we build out our academic programs and partnerships in this area, environmental justice, we'll be featuring programming on the broad topic, and we'll start that programming with today's show. In the studio with us today is Professor Marco Castaldi. He's the director of the Earth Engineering Center here at CCNY and a professor in our chemical engineering department. In the second half of the show, Cheryl Huber, the assistant director of Green Market, will join us. Green Market is the country's largest network of outdoor farmers markets, and she'll discuss uh, Grow NYC's zero waste program. So we look forward to that. But now, let me tell you a little bit about Professor Castaldi. Dr. Marco Castaldi is the director of the Earth Engineering Center at CCNY, a professor in the chemical engineering department. Uh, he is a globally recognized expert in the field of waste to energy and specializes in the field of combustion and catalysts. Catalysis. Uh, Give me that word. Catalysis. Catalysis. (laughs) Prior to academia, Dr. Castaldi worked in industry for nearly 10 years as a research and development engineer and then as a manager at Precision Combustion Incorporated. Dr. Castaldi has a Ph.D. in chemical engineering from the University of California, and to date, he's He's, got, uh, he's published approximately 95 peer-reviewed research articles, 40 peer-reviewed conference papers, three book chapters, two textbooks, and 11 patents in the field of catalysis, combustion, and gasification. 
He is a technical fellow of the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, and the Fulbright Commission. She's also provided expert testimony to state and federal committees and served as expert witness for numerous cases related to waste to energy, air emissions, and catalysis. Some of his research findings have been covered by the New York Times, The Observer, CNN, and other trade publications. Dr. Castaldi, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with uh, a couple of definitional questions. Um, We've used the phrase uh, waste to energy. You heard me stumble over the word catalysis. Um, could you just kind of explain to our audience what those two phrases mean and, and, and maybe one or two others that we might be using over the course of the conversation? Um, sure. Waste to energy basically means that uh, we want to take our waste products or our waste streams and try to extract as much as we can from it. Energy being one thing. We want to get materials from it, which we can talk about as we go along. But if you can't get the materials from it, at least we can get the energy. So that's energy from waste or waste to energy. Catalysis is exactly uh, what you think about when you have an automobile uh, catalytic converter. Mm -hmm. Similar material and technology. And the idea there is to, again, take a waste stream like an air pollution stream, Mm -hmm. run it across a catalyst, and make it into benign gases that can go into the environment. And the field of study is catalysis for that making those. Um, One of the other things that we want to, I think, touch upon is uh, things like recycle Mm -hmm. and things like recovery, which uh, are... Different different meanings, right? Different meanings, correct. Could you... uh, Let's start by differentiating those two terms. Sure. So recovery is uh, to actually get the material, to recover it from, let's say, the garbage. So if I take a plastic bottle and throw it, and I want to throw it away, I could throw it into a black bag that would just go into a landfill, um, or I could throw it into the proper receptacle and recover it. I see. But when it's recycled is when we actually physically now have taken that bottle and produced a plastic chair from it or something. I see. Okay. So I want to start with unveiling uh, some big nasty secrets in the recycling world. And, and I've, you and I have talked about this, so I know some of them. But what are the most important things that people don't know about recycling? You know, where and how it happens, what our capacity is, and uh, what gets left out of the equation when we talk about recycling? Yeah, this is a, it's a complicated issue. I would say one of the big nasty secrets, if you will, and honestly, I think it's confusion that really goes toward it. But it's this concept of recovery or recovered for recycle, and what actually gets recycled. And, for example, um, you know, 50% of plastics that are recovered could possibly be recycled, only 50%. Um, However, in reality, it's more like 18% gets recycled, even though 50% is recovered. So where does the rest of that go? And that's what you might consider a secret Um, Because when municipalities and regions try to go for their sustainability goals and so on, uh, what they recover is great because they're actually able to get it. But if it's not recycled, it doesn't really play into that uh, sustainability equation. So if I've got a big garbage bag full of plastic and so I bring it to a recycling center, 
they're going to take 50% of that and say, even though we've recovered this, it's not recyclable. That's correct. And then there's the other 50% that is potentially recyclable. Correct. But we're only actually getting about 18, about not 18% of that, would be 36% right. of the 50%. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. And the other, the, the, the remainder of the potentially recycled plastic, what happens Well, there? that's, again, a, another complicated situation. What uh, normally happens is it gets aggregated and it's a very mixed material, and it would be sold for different purposes, some of it to, say, uh, cement industries to recover the energy. So that's fossil fuel that's not being used, although, of course, the plastic was made from that. It took on two lives, so that's good. It was going to China. Okay. And uh, China then implemented a, uh, you know, they call it the China sword, but implemented a criterion that said... uh, the plastic that you sent us could only have a certain percentage of contaminants. And that's what now has really created awareness because that mixed material that's not recyclable or recycled um, is highly contaminated with different plastics that nobody wants or can't use and other things like glass and paper. So, so if I've got a bag of plastic and I have a glass bottle in that, for the, for the new Chinese policy, that's contaminated That's contaminated. Uh, that's right. Uh, okay. That's right. So a lot of people are also concerned about agro-industry and particularly the kinds of waste that meat production produces and how we deal with it. Uh, what are the big concerns in this sector of the economy? Well, in the agro... So focusing definitely on the meat production, one is the um, resources that are used for the uh, meat production. The other side of it is really boils down to the consumers, you and I, that we will acquire, purchase... Uh, you know, buy at the restaurant too much Mm -hmm. and uh, we don't use it. Normally uh, a one-third of what we buy in food and that could be parsed out properly also with meat, same way, uh, it's not uh, used. And that's for a number of reasons. It's not just because we're all wasteful. We have good intentions, but it has a certain shelf life. Mm -hmm. And so then it goes bad. And meat in particular has this issue uh, in terms of going bad and, you know, it's uncertain with meat. A fruit, if it's damaged, turns brown, you could look at it uh, and see it. Meat, not always so clear. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And what about the, the waste products in the, con- in the production of, I, I, I think we, uh, you know, off, off microphone, we talked a little bit about uh, uh, the manure that's produced right. in, I think, particularly in the, pit, in the pork industry. Well, right? in the pork and the cattle industry, okay. right. So um, in, that, in that waste stream, yes, uh, there are uh, such efficiencies in the meat production, pork and beef and so on, that uh, the amount that we consume and use the manure that's generated, while conceptually you could put that to the land and fertilize it, the amount that's being produced is far too much fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And, of course, farmers and companies are doing the best that they can, but they are inundated with the amount of manure that's still left around. And the question is what to do with it because uh, it's so much. uh, It doesn't have a very high energy content. It has some, but uh, it has a good nutrient content. And so the idea is, well, we can't burn it. We, Uh we, We can't get energy from that. It's just too much moisture and so on. We can't land apply it all and re-fertilize because, again, it's just too much. We only need a small portion of it. But there's a lot of good minerals and nutrients in there. And what can we gather from that? And that's 
really in the research stages of how do you extract those minerals and nutrients the best way possible. And this is still sort of a frontier that we're, we're developing right oh, now. Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, it was always known, and there's digester ponds that they manage it well, but it's managing it. It's not really extracting the value from it. I see. But I'd like to turn now to an area of your specific expertise, um, which is something we talked about at the beginning, the relationship between energy and waste. And you just said that um, the manure from meat production doesn't have a great deal of energy content. So if you're thinking about recycling as an energy extraction preposition, how do you go about it? Where do you look? What sorts of recycling are we talking about? Hmm. So, uh, yeah, the connection between energy and waste is huge. You need, first of all, energy to make the products that we want. Mm -hmm. And that goes all the way from meat to the plastics and metals that we want. So there's energy embedded in these types of products. What's not used, then there's still a energy in that. And then the question is, what is the best way to extract that? Now, what you can get is materials, mm -hmm. because that then saves energy to re-extract those and make those materials, um, like the nutrients in the manure. You can't get the energy from it. There's really not a good inherent energy, but maybe if you could extract minerals from that and nutrients, well, we don't have to use energy to grow more and make more nutrients and so on. Um, where we look is there are different technologies. Um, the frontier is still this, let's call it wet waste, manure and so on. But the very mature technologies take uh, plastics and paper and textiles that cannot be recycled for a number of reasons that have no markets for recycling, but there's a large amount of energy. I mean, for example, the amount of energy that's in plastic, uh, you know, one kilogram of, of energy that's in plastic has a little bit more energy than a kilogram of coal. Okay. And so if we can't recycle the plastic, and we can discuss some of the issues why, um, the best thing to do then is to at least get the energy because we've offset the use of more coal. Okay. And so we look to say where we can extract energy, what's the best way to do it, what are the right technologies. It's not only combusting it and getting energy. You can convert it through gasification or pyrolysis and get chemicals again and remake plastics. Um, but you could also recover materials from that. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, the garbage, just the normal municipal garbage that you and I throw away um, if you burn that to get energy from it, you'll save one, for every ton of garbage that you burn, you'll save one ton of greenhouse gases, but then we'll also get metals. I mean, I try not to, but many times we might throw away clothes with change in our pockets, mm -hmm. but even the metals that are on the zippers and so on, that, that gets recovered. And that's an energy savings. And it gets recovered in, in, in combustion. So if, if, if we're, let's say we've got a garbage burning steam plant that's producing energy. Uh, once that's burned, we're still recovering some of the stuff that's left behind? That's correct, it? because metal can't be burned. Right. Right. And so that'll come out as an ash. Okay. And, but that ash is made up of a large portion of metal and also inorganics like sand and silica and this thing, glass and mm -hmm. this type of stuff. But there is a large amount and a very large business. I mean, for example, one facility, uh, one waste to energy or energy from waste facility burning municipal garbage that you and I throw away will recover 
about 3,000 tons of aluminum a year. Wow. And, and again, that's just because of what goes into making up the clothes and the materials that we use. And we don't want to throw away clothes. We throw away other things. Right. And so, yes, yeah, so once you extract the energy from that, then you now have the opportunity to get the metals and the materials. And, you know, we talk about combustion as a way of, of, of dealing with waste. And it feels like a really kind of archaic, polluting technology. But I gather that's not the case. How, is, how has engineering and technology kept up with this? Or am I wrong? Is it, is it still something we'd like to avoid at all costs, if possible? Not avoid at all costs, okay. but there is a hierarchy of solutions. Okay. So in the garbage that we have, the best thing to do is to reduce the amount of waste that we have. Okay. And, and that's you and me. <laughs> in, in, on average, you and I will throw away four pounds of garbage a day. So the first thing we should try to do is reduce that. Okay. The second thing then, of course, is try to reuse it. So the reused water bottles that we always like to refill with water, that's second best. Mm -hmm. Then recycle it. That, that's actually now the third best step. If you can't do those three for whatever reasons, then extract the energy and the materials, right? So it's there. All of these are above putting it to landfill. What are the, you know, let's say the emissions, how does uh, uh, engineering and technology kept up with it? Like anything else, you know, automobiles used to yield right. and produce percentage of carbon monoxide. Mm -hmm. Now it's parts per million. It's the same analogy mm -hmm. um, that uh, the waste to energy act industry is actually quite uh, progressive in that because they realize they're burning materials that are very heterogeneous, that can change. Um, but there are other technologies, gasification and pyrolysis, that don't burn it mm -hmm. and basically try to just convert the material into a chemical or a gas that can be used for chemical production. Okay. Gasification, that's, is, is that a catalytic? Is that You can use catalysts for that, yes. Okay. That's, yes. In fact, that's, that? Here I am, that's, bringing my new vocabulary. Well, I'll tell play. you what, that's great. You actually hit the nail on the head because you don't want a catalyst for combustion. Right. Uh, using catalysts in pyrolysis is not a great thing, but it's been shown that using catalysts in gasification has a lot of advantages. So that's actually quite astute. <laughs> okay, well, they stumble into it then. <laughs> um, you know, one of the problems that, and this gets back to the story you were telling about, uh, you know, the 1% contamination. Uh, but one of the problems is in when you're dealing with waste management and, and, and uh, uh, recycling, you know, different kinds of plastics have different kinds of uh, recycling technologies and processes. And so you get a big bag of mixed plastic. And you and I have talked about this, and, and uh, a lot of the research focuses on how you convert a specific chemical in a specific kind of plastic to something useful, gasification or energy or whatever it is. But you used a phrase, you said, you know, the stuff. That if you think about what you get in a, in a recycling bag or in, you know, even, the, you know, a, a, a sample of manure. You have all kinds of stuff mixed together. And, and that, for all practical purposes, is what you have to deal with. You don't, you don't get the luxury of isolating one kind of plastic from another unless you're going to sort it out. Um, so how are you approaching this as a, as a kind of a practical puzzle for recycling as, as we encounter it in the real world? Um. So this is one of the things uh, that I love working at City College about is that it's appreciated. There's always a difference between science and engineering. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think uh, what I find here at City College is that they are married very well. And um, in terms of looking at the one chemical, 
that's good. So looking at one type of plastic, let's say PET, and understanding how that could be recycled and converted and, and really understanding the mechanism and the science behind it, very important, very good. It will improve things. However, you hit the nail on the head. We don't only get one type of plastic. We get all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then how do you manage that? And what we do in our research and a number of others are trying to do is we're trying to deal with the real mixture and understand how that mixture is actually converted and what technologies exist today mm-hmm. that can make a dent, that can do something with that mixed stuff. Because, again, I go back to it's you and I that if, if we were to, first of all, not sure if it's practical, but put pure waste in each bucket, well, then we could almost solve the problem, but then you have many buckets. Right. And so what we really try to work with is the real material. We get samples from, uh, you know, the great thing about students is they're very eager to learn, and we send them out to uh, go get garbage. Uh-huh. And one thing I remember one of my students telling me was one of the best things that she ever heard was she saw a custodian in the Steinman Hall taking a garbage bag and putting it, you know, into the big receptacle. And she said, you know, could I take that bag from you? I need to do some research. Gave her the bag, and he said, in all my 30 years working here, no one has ever asked me for the garbage. <laughs> and so, and we, because we're trying to understand what is it that we really do and what can we do. Yeah, so if I go into your lab and I look for stuff, I imagine you've got it more or less sorted. What do you got in there? Well, we've got... Uh, Different types of um, plastic mixtures that come from very sophisticated material recovery facilities, right? So New York City does a really good job of collecting the different plastics, let's say, and metals, and it goes to a material recovery facility. Again, they can only sell portions of it. We take samples of that to try to understand it. We get (laughs) manure, Right. Hog manure, uh-huh. cow manure, pig manure. And again, it's great with the students. You know, they very eager to learn. And, and I think when they see it, they're a little bit of shock. But when we say, look, this is the real this is the real stuff that we're dealing with. And right. if we could solve that problem, we're going to make an impact. And to a certain extent, it encourages them. So we would find, you know, animal poop and uh-huh. uh, all these other types of things. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> Listen, I'd like to talk a little bit about policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you've spent some time testifying in front of government panels, and you've done work with, with New York City on these issues. But you're also in a laboratory doing cutting-edge research and how, uh, how you deal with some of these really complicated real-world real problems. And I, I wonder, what, um, how effectively are policymakers um, incorporating the research and the discoveries that happen in your labs or other labs uh, into... Um, you know, solving these problems? Is it a pretty fast pickup or, or, you know, a lot of times governments and, you know, the way we do things get a little bit ossified and it's hard to change. So what do you see in that field? Well, uh, what I see is a little bit of, let's say, a dichotomy. It, it moves slow, mm-hmm. but I think most of the well-meaning, well-intentioned uh, policymakers, decision makers want to do something. Mm-hmm. And so there's a motivation there. But um, it moves slow for a lot of reasons. One, I think, is because the cutting-edge research, you know, we're still figuring it out. We're still learning about it, trying to understand it. So to have, let's say, a non-expert, we need to really put it into the context and put it into terms that is understandable, Mm -hmm. even when we don't have the full understanding. This is one. 
And what happens then, I think, is that leads to a little bit of confusion. And so, you know, for example, uh, there's a lot of, I think, uh, public perception that everything could be recycled, Mm -hmm. and it cannot. And when you go through the technical side of it, you can understand why even technologies today, even if you had a pure stream and you had perfect markets that would accept it. And so when the policymaker sort of hears different sides of the public, and some you know, are more intelligent than others and maybe have more information than others, to them it's hard for them to discriminate. Okay, what's real? What's still in the lab? What's still developing? Um, and they're trying to make the best decision So they move very cautiously. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times moving very cautiously is, like you said, sticking to the status quo. We know what works. And that hinders progress a little bit. So I think that, um, unfortunately, it moves slow. There is willingness there. And what's important, not only from people like us that, you know, educate and so on, but also to disseminate it in a way that puts it into the right context and shows that this solution, this new technology is better mm-hmm. than what's being done now. And, and, and also show that, no, we will not reduce our waste to zero. So no matter how hard you and I try, it's not going to zero. Mm-hmm. We're not going to reuse everything. Cannot happen. And we cannot recycle everything. So there has to be other solutions that come into that. And that's what needs to move to the policy to say, let's try as many solutions as possible. And again, when we talk about waste, we know what one of those answers are is do not put it to landfill. Mm-hmm. That is the last thing we want to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think? So you think about the discussions that we have about, you know, waste and recycling, you know, big uh, stir about uh, drinking straws, for instance, right? But if you ask yourself, like, what if you developed a hierarchy of the problems that we needed to solve to sort of attack these problems where we have the technology to make the biggest impact and the area of the problem that is most troubling and dangerous for the planet, where would you concentrate our efforts? That's a complicated question. Well, <laughs> we have a few minutes. <laughs> um, I, would, uh, I would concentrate efforts on a few solutions, Mm -hmm. not one. There's not going to be one solution. And so, you know, just the straw issue, it's great that maybe the straws are banned and it raises awareness 100%. The percentage that we have solved the problem is half a percent, Mm -hmm. right? What are we going to do with the other 99.5%? And that's where what I would say the concentration has to be is on all the mature proven technologies that can manage the waste in the most environmentally sustainable way. Mm -hmm. And what that means is send as little to landfill as possible. And and that's where I would concentrate the efforts. That's where I would put funding resources toward. That's where I would put decisions. You know, New York City, very progressive. They should deploy demonstrations of different thermal technologies, different chemical recycling technologies, different plastic reuse efforts. They're doing some of that, but you don't see it on other technologies. And I think that's where then we miss the boat Mm -hmm. because, of course, when you pay attention to what's happening in terms of demonstrations, everybody becomes aware of it, and they are not 
following it so closely that they think, well, that's the only one. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. There's a whole part of that iceberg that you're not seeing that can still be developed and tried to solve it. And it's it's really going to be a combination of mm-hmm. technologies. It, it's, it's not going to be one. Mm-hmm. And I think by putting that suite of technologies together and processes together, that'll make a huge impact. Okay. We're pleased now to welcome Cheryl Huber from Green Markets to the conversation. Welcome. Thank you. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about her. Uh, She is the Assistant Director of Green Market, and that is the country's largest network of outdoor farmers markets. She oversees program development, marketing, partnerships, and operations for Green Market's food access and education teams. She's developed new programs from the ground up that help Green Markets reach new audiences, promote public health, and support small farm businesses. And so I'll say again... Welcome to from City to the World. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to start by asking you first just to describe the, the work of Green Market and tell us a little bit about what drew you to that work and, and, um, and also what our listeners need to know about it in order to avail of some of the markets that are up around the city. Sure. Uh, Green Market has been around since 1976. Mm-hmm. Our first farmer's market opened. Um, our mission really is to provide fresh local food to New York City residents and also really to support um, rural farmers. So we're, we're really focused on um, farm viability, making sure that especially farmers upstate in New York, but in also five other states around us, have opportunities to sell their products and, and make a living that way. Um, so all of our farmers are growing what they sell at the market. Um, you won't see wholesale, you won't see bananas, you'll see things that are grown locally within the Northeast. Um, we have 50 locations around the city. We're in all five boroughs, many, many different kinds of neighborhoods. Um, and we, um, we work with about 200 and uh, a little over 200 farmers to do that. So they, you know, grow everything from fruits and vegetables to, um, raising quail on Long Island and, you know, everything in between. (laughs) And then do I sometimes see even fish at some of these markets? Yes. Our fish is, is one of the most popular things that we sell because, um, as our farmers are, are growing what they sell, or in the case of fish, growing what they've caught, it's a very transparent marketplace. And so we really pride ourselves on the fact that New, York, New Yorkers can talk to the person who grew their food, caught the fish, you know, um, raised the cows, or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be, to really understand. You know, it's a place of education, understand the food system, understand how things um, were grown or raised and how they got to you that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so in our 50 locations, we have about half of those are year are year round. Um, the rest are seasonal, so they're open from about July until about Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And um, around here, we have our Fort Washington Green Market outside of the hospital on um, Tuesdays, and the 175th Street market on Thursdays, and we have a market at Columbia University on Thursdays and Sundays. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to ask you to repeat that at the end of the, <laughs> end of the show so that uh, so if you're listening and you want to get those locations, get a pencil, and um, we'll get back to it in, in, in a little bit. What's the relationship between um, the city's Grow NYC program and, and Green Markets? So Grow NYC is really our parent organization. Okay. It's um, a you know nonprofit based in New York City um, that provides environmental programming really in partnership with New Yorkers to create a more sustainable city. Mm-hmm. So Green Market is um, among the largest of Grow NYC's programs. Um, Grow NYC also has zero waste programs funded mm-hmm. by the Department of Sanitation. Mm-hmm. Um, we do environmental education for youth, and we have a, 
um, community gardens and school gardens program that focuses on greening the city, providing, you know, um, spaces for people to grow food and things like that and to learn from um, from that experience. Mm-hmm. We, we talked earlier about, um, I think, Professor Castaldi, you said that an average person throws out four pounds of garbage every, every day. day. And, uh, you know, so... I'm interested in what the emphasis of your youth education program is. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of you, you spend a lot of time talking about what city level or state level programs to to preserve the environment might be. But, but what are you telling young people in your programs? That's a great question. We have a few different areas that we are focused on in our education programs. Um, Green Market has an education program that's focused primarily on understanding regional agriculture. We always talk about compost because it's a critical part of, um, you know, what farmers are doing on the farm as well as what youth can do at home, Mm -hmm. you know, in their their homes um, in terms of saving food scraps and dropping them off at their green market to be composted. Um, We also have a um, program that's um, called Recycling Champions that works within schools to educate the student body about recycling and composting and helps to really increase the diversion rates in schools so that kids aren't just, you know, throwing everything into the trash but sorting things properly and that the school is able to take advantage of of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you know, I think a big part of Green Market's education is on kind of those first steps of, um, you know, reducing waste where we try to show people how to use like all parts of the plant. Um, you don't have to throw away your carrot tops. You can make carrot top pesto and mm-hmm. um, you can make stock out of your veggie scraps and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, we're really trying to look at the, the system as a whole um, mm-hmm. and, and really provide education around all parts of that. And really doing it on a human scale, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, some of the problems we talked about the first half of the show are big national city recycling program scales. But there's there's so much in consumer patterns in where you buy and how you buy. And your education mm-hmm. programs are also for for adult consumers as well. I don't imagine you're teaching. Uh, nine-year-olds about uh, carrot top pesto. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that all of our programs w- really are are geared towards all ages. You know, some things happen in schools. Many things happen at the farmer's market in terms of education. So we have, exactly, we have free recipes that are available. We have um, nutrition and cooking demonstrations at many of our markets. So, you know, we may be we, often we do programming that's kind of geared towards children, but it's the adults who are saying things like, "Oh, I've never had, you know, right. I've never tried that before. I didn't know what to do with rutabaga." Right. Um, so we're really speaking to the broad swath of New Yorkers, I think, in those programs. Yeah, this is an old tactic, right? Yes. You, you, you educate children, and you have the adults standing around the periphery <laughs> of the conversation and and and, and picking st- stuff up. Um, you know, in some ways, the the most explicit mandate of green markets is to bring fresh food to people of, of, in all corners of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and we heard in the first half of the show, though, about the dangers that a big-scale agribusiness uh, poses. When you work with a different kind of farmer, I gather that it's not all organic farming, but, but mostly they are small farmers mm-hmm. bringing produce directly to consumers. And, and, and so uh, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm leading the witness, but, but, <laughs> but, but tell me what's, what's unique about the farmers that you work with, and, and how do you select who you're going to work with and who you're not going to work with? Sure. We have actually a really extensive um, book of rules that we that we use to sort of um, 
make sure that the farmers who are applying are the right fit. You know, we want to, uh, the main criteria really is that they are small family owned farms and that um, they're going to be selling what they grew or made themselves. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the kind of the number one criteria. Um, we don't have um, strict guidelines about growing practices. They can really be farming in the way that works for them. But um, what we find is that because they're small family farms, they're raising their children often on the land that they're farming. Um, they are not farming, you know, huge acreage. The biggest farm is probably about 1,500 acres. Mm-hmm. And um, that means that, you know, they're farming just in a way that's more sustainable and that they're not going to be blanketing pesticides or anything like that. They're really being more strategic about how they treat their land and um, in the hopes that that land will continue to serve generations after them as well in, in farming. So I think, um, you know, the farmers that we're working with are doing things very, very differently than than what you see in agribusiness. And the other thing is that, you know, to to really make it in the farmer's market, it helps to grow a diversity of products. So it helps to have, you know, right. we have farmers that grow 200 different varieties of fruits and vegetables. And so um, that naturally creates a healthier soil. They're doing cover cropping. They are, um, you know, just more carefully managing the land and, and growing a variety of things, rotating them through. Um, and that creates a more sustainable, you know, long-term business practice. Let me ask you something. What, what fruit or vegetable did you see for the very first time at one of your green markets? <laughs> There's got to be something. I think it would. The I mean, the one that really stands out is celeriac, which yes. is the celery root. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone's had celery. Everyone's seen celery. Even the celery stalks look different at green market. They're vivid green. They're not, um, you know, the wide kind mm-hmm. of stocks that are much more narrow typically and they have a lot more leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, but the root is just this gnarly kind of whitish brownish thing. And delicious. It is delicious. Yeah, yeah. Could I ask a question? <laughs> yeah, this? sure, go ahead. So uh, with some of the research that we did, especially with the agro business, I remember the, because just touching upon what it looked like gnarly, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of the waste comes in because it's like an ugly mm-hmm. food, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the supermarkets and the agro business try to take that out because they, they want to sell product. Baby carrots, right? Uh, right. And, and I'm just curious, you know, with your organization and Grow NYC, do you see that more of that, you know, ugly fruit is, is, is sold because people understand that that's just as good as... Absolutely. Thank you for asking that question. Oh, okay. I mean, this, this is a great point. I think um, when farmers are selling directly to the consumer at somewhere like a farmer's market, they can sell everything they harvest. Uh, you know, they, um, we often, at this time of year, especially with tomatoes just at peak, and right. please go to the green market if you haven't recently because the tomato variety is incredible. Um, but you'll see farmers selling bags of tomatoes as seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the, they might have been a little right. bit bruised when they were in transport, um, but they're going to be more affordable. And if you're making tomato sauce, you don't need a perfect-looking tomato anyway. Right. So. It's a great point that um, those, you know, that waste is naturally reduced. Like, the, you know, if you're selling on the wholesale market, um, the wholesalers require grading of the right. fruits and vegetables. They right. have to be a certain diameter to be able to be sold. And, um, you know, the farmer's market isn't like that. So when the sort of ugly food movement or ugly fruits and vegetables movement came up, um, we all kind of joked that oh, we've had that for right. <laughs> for decades. You just you know? didn't call it that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and those things are beautiful. You know, they're they're grown naturally and um it's yeah. a great thing to be able to use the whole plant that way. Yeah. 
our year of programming here at uh, City College centers on the framework of environmental justice. And sometimes I think we fall into the trap of thinking that environmental concerns are things that wealthier and better positioned people um, may turn to. Like once you've satisfied all the other things, then if you've got you know, the luxury of paying attention to a social cause, you can turn your attention to environmental um, concerns. And I suspect you've got a very different opinion about this. I mean, green markets explicitly uh, sets up in all corners of the city, in all different neighborhoods, all different, you know, works with all different classes. Um, so what do you think the relationship is between communities in need and the kinds of strategies for living that, that you and green markets are advocating for? Uh, well, I think what we see time and time again is that, um, you know, through the farmer's market is that everyone wants to feed their family the healthiest best food that they can. Um, and what we find is that no matter what the neighborhood is, as long as people cook and are interested in cooking, markets do well, farmers are selling out, you know, it's a it's a popular place to be because the quality simply can't be matched. We're selling things that were harvested that morning or the day before. Um, it's the freshest food. It has the most nutrients because of that freshness. Um, and to make it more affordable, we have a few programs that we run that we're super proud of. Um, all of our farmers markets, except SNAP, um, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as Food Stamps. Um, so you can use SNAP at every single, um, actually every grown YC food access point. So we have green market, farmers markets. We also run youth markets and the Fresh Food Box Program. So you can use SNAP at all of those. Wow. And at Green Market and um, Youth Market, if you spend $5 on your SNAP, you receive an additional $2 health buck that's good for fruits and vegetables. And that's through a partnership with the New York City Department of Health mm -hmm. and Mental Hygiene. And that program has, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's just blown up the, you know, the, the use of SNAP at markets. We, did, we do about a million dollars a year now in sales. Um, in SNAP and then an additional 400000 in health bucks, and that's been over the past three years. We've kind of stayed steady. So um, people want to use, you know, people are excited to use SNAP on mm -hmm. fresh food like this at the farmer's market. They're excited about health bucks. Um, they know about the program. You know, I think it's been a great way to just spread the word about farmer's markets in general. And we want this to be something that's for everyone, and we try to just, um, you know, encourage the use of that f for that reason. Um, we also accept the Farmer's Market Nutrition Program coupons, mm -hmm. which are $4 coupons that are provided to um, recipients of WIC and to low-income seniors. Um, those are accepted at all of our sites. And um, and then beyond Green Market, you know, our Zero Waste Program um, works with um, NYCHA housing um, developments to sort of in a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring thing, educating um NYCHA residents as environmental ambassadors for their communities. So those who are interested can become an environmental ambassador and teach others in their neighborhood how to recycle, how to compost, you know, sort of educate on these programs so that, um, you know, to increase the those diversion rates and, and make sure that everyone has the opportunity to contribute to a healthier and cleaner and more sustainable city. That's fantastic. Um, one of the things, you know, in the past, working with students here at City College, one of the questions that students uh, liked to research in doing community surveys was this question of a food desert. Mm -hmm. And um, in the early 90s, when I first started um, working with students who were interested in this kind of thing, they would survey the area pretty close to City College and find 
all sorts of areas that they would call a, a food desert. Do we still do we still have these in New York City? Are there places where, um, despite the efforts of green markets and other um, advocates, it's it's difficult to even find a place to buy good, healthy food? I mean, the answer is yes. I think um, the terminology has sort of evolved. People often say food apartheid these days. Okay. Food swamp used to be a term, but okay. there's some debate about that one. I think the issue really is what is available, what type of food is available. It's mm-hmm. not whether or not you can eat because sure. in most communities in New York City, you can walk somewhere. If there's a gas station, right? There's a, there's <laughs> <Right>. a Twinkie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if there's a bodega, there's a honey bun. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what we what we want to really be looking at is is the kind of food that's available. And I think there's been a lot of initiatives to increase access points, um, and that's the right—that's the right thing to do. You know, to whether it's through um, farmers markets or through our youth market farm stands that are run and operated by neighborhood youth. Um, as I mentioned, our food box program—we we operate our own sites, but we also train community-based organizations to run their own food box programs, which is really—it's kind of an affordable buying club. So. Um, People can sign up a week in advance to get a seasonal box of fruits and vegetables um, the next week for about $15. So it's really affordable. It's meant to – it's designed to last the whole week. Um, It's all seasonally, you know, in season. And um, those kinds of access points are really critical. You know, the Department of Health has also done work on sort of um, healthy corner stores and green carts. And all of these programs, when put together, I think can really change the landscape of the city mm-hmm. in a positive way. That, that, that's similar to what we were talking about in terms of uh, all the solutions yeah. need mm-hmm. to be engaged right. to try to make the impact. Yes. Which is, I guess, why it's important that, that you know, I look at the website of, of Green Markets and Grow NYC, and, and in that tab... There's a there's a tab for people that want to volunteer for the program, and it, and, and it feels you you read the whole range of things that's that are going on from the um, you know the zero waste program to the education programs to going and you know buying food in this um, I don't want to say it's a new way but a traditional way that may be new to New York, and it starts to feel like an effort to surround the problem from all different sides. Mm-hmm. Um, how important. Is the volunteer component the the training education volunteer? You mentioned it um, with the with the with the in, uh, conservation advocates. What did you call environmental them? ambassadors? Ambassadors. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> um, but but that's in some ways it's only the tip of the iceberg, right? Mm-hmm. You have a whole community of people that are that have gathered around this effort. Absolutely. I mean, there's the people who actually officially volunteer with us. We have trainings, you know, typically more than once a month for you know whether it's recycling volunteers or green market volunteers. Um, and those are the folks who are showing up, you know, maybe every Saturday at their neighborhood farmer's market to help, you know, help customers sort of, um, find what they're looking for and, and, you know, be that source of information. Um, there are community gardeners who participate in our programs by, you know, um, requesting help with building a rainwater harvesting system Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, a whole variety of things. There's schools that are interested in, you know, working with us. They can apply for mini grants to rebuild or build a, a school garden. Um, you know, so there's 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 the official volunteers, and then there's the New Yorkers who just engage with our programs every day, whether it's by, um, you know, shopping weekly at their farmers market or um, by dropping off their food scraps at a at a public drop off site. So mm-hmm. there's 
it's really um, incredible how many people engage with us every day. Are you, um, this is a two-part question, I mean, are you in still, uh, you know, you've been at this since the 1970s, but are you, are you still in expansion mode? Are you looking for new sites for green markets? And, and if the answer to that is yes, <laughs> and someone is listening to this and, and saying, well, there's not a green market in my area, <laughs> w- w- what do you do to, to, to bring this into a part of the community where maybe it doesn't exist? Yeah, I, that's a great question. We've been around since 1970, really the forefront of the environmental movement mm-hmm. in this country. Um, and I meant to say that we were founded by Mayor Lindsay back then, so as sort of a way to provide environmental programming um, in partnership with New Yorkers. And I think we've adapted along with sort of the, you know, where that movement has gone, um, you know, through things like our composting program and, and our farmers markets that have just kind of built on themselves. You know, the youth market program came about, you know, maybe 15 years ago now. Um, and then food box is about maybe six years old. So we're sort of always expanding, always developing new programs. And um, the easiest way to <laughs> to request a, a market in your community is to go on our website to the Green Market FAQ page. Okay. And there's um, there's sort of a, a form you can fill out. And it's important for people to know that, um, you know, first of all, we're trying to not duplicate efforts. So there's other farmer's market operators right. out there, and there's other community-based markets that are um, that are starting up in neighborhoods. So we're never going to move in on someone, you know, where someone else is already providing that access point. And at the same time, um, we have pretty specific requirements for opening a successful market. You know, we want people to, we want there to be great foot traffic. Mm-hmm. We want there to be parking for farmers, you right. know, basic stuff that, um, you know, people don't always think of when they're they're kind of requesting extra service in their neighborhood. But, um, you know, really looking at the logistics of each individual site is, is key. And we need community support. So, you know, if you're submitting a letter that you want a, a market or a site in your neighborhood, um, it helps for us to know that the community board is interested mm-hmm. or your local elected official is on board. Um, those kinds of things really help us. So Fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you one more chance uh, for those people listening in the uh, northern Manhattan Harlem area. Where can they find a green market um, in the area? Yeah, we've got our 175th Street green market on Thursdays. Um, we have our Fort Washington green market on 168th Street. That's over on by the Broadway? hospital, yeah, okay. over, yeah, um, that's on Tuesdays and on Thursdays and Sundays year round. We have our Columbia Market on 116th and Broadway. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you for listening to From City to the World. Special thanks to our guest, Professor Marco Castaldi, the director of the Earth Engineering Center here at CCNY, and a professor in our engineering, our chemical engineering department, and to Cheryl Huber, the assistant director of Green Markets the country's largest network of outdoor uh, farmers market. Um, I hope you join us next month. We will be having um, really an extension of this conversation, talking about food security and the work that we're doing on campus and in the community. Um, This show is produced by Angela Harden and yours truly, Vince Boudreau, president of the City College of New York. Thank you for listening, everybody. (laughs) We'll see you next month on From City to the World.